Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, unlike split ends, doesn't want to spend six months in a leaky moat. That's right, moat. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm exceptionally well. Our second week in a row of being in the same room at the same time. Although, due to the modern miracle that is radio theatre of the mind, we're actually recording this one before last week's podcast, so work that out. In fact, the reason is because I'm on a holidays right now. As we speak, I'm somewhere in Western New South Wales, spending some tourism dollars and having a great time with my family, hopefully, or I'm stuck on the side of the road with a flat tyre or something else. So let's assume I'm having a good time. But this is the regular episode of our podcast. We're going to do something a little bit different because I'm on holidays. And I mentioned at the top of the, the, top of the uh, podcast, six months in a leaky moat, we're going to talk, Doc, about moats. Now, not the castles, not the alligator-filled sludge and sewage-filled uh, cesspits that are worth <laughs> the castle. Have you been to the Tower of London, speaking of which? Actually, I have. So it's really cool, right? They don't actually have the moat anymore, but they've still got the dugout space where, they, where the moat used to be. And effectively, it was kind of just this sewage-filled kind of, you know, I can't imagine the stench, but I also imagine it was pretty good at keeping people away. Well, the sewage-filled uh, moat is great. Like, <laughs> I mean, who wants to swim through that? <laughs> now, we're going to talk about different sort of moats. The moats that we're going to talk about are the... So moat as a concept was pretty much popularised by Warren Buffett. The idea behind it was that, like defending a castle, if you could do things as a business person, as a business manager, to basically maximise your defensive characteristics as a company, you maximise your chance of basically staying in business and keeping the level of profitability you were previously earning coming through the door, right? Seems reasonably straightforward. Now... He took that to, you know, basically mean or, or be synonymous with what we otherwise would call a sustainable competitive advantage. So that's what a moat really is. For those people who find moats easier to think about, it's a really wonderful, personally, I think, um, metaphor because it's a really obvious, really clear. We've all seen, you know, <laughs> from fairy tales onwards from Shrek, if you've watched that, we all know what a moat is. And so we get the idea that it keeps people away. That said... It's come under a little bit of, well, criticism recently by no less than your mate, Elon Musk. Now, when, when, when my best mate, Warren, and your best mate, Elon, have an argument, it makes us a bit uncomfortable. You don't want to watch your father's fight, so we're, we're in that scenario. Mate, it's... It, Elon effectively said, moats don't matter. Do you remember the actual quote? Um, uh, no, uh, uh, I think, well, his actual quote was, and moats don't matter, uh, what matters... Uh, is uh, pace of innovation. So he basically, I mean, and then you could basically say pace of innovation is also a moat. So, um, and that's what we're going to try and talk about. We're going to try and break down exactly what a moat is, what it isn't, how it works. Now, let's before we get to a bit of a tease about about uh, Warren Warren Elon. Let's get let's go back just a little bit, mate, and talk a bit about what that means. So let's talk about sustainable competitive advantage for a second. Mm-hmm. There are an amazing number of so-called sustainable competitive advantages and we often laugh internally at the fool, mate, that if you asked any investor or any company to list all their, all their competitive advantages, you come up with seven for each company. And then you think, well, if that was true, <laughs> these would all be phenomenally profitable, phenomenally successful, uh, unbeatable, you know, all those things. It would make, it would make for a wonderful um, set of ASX companies, right? If, if everyone had this moat that let them be super profitable, that'd be great. The simple reality is there aren't that many super profitable companies and then almost by definition, it's fair to say that there, there just aren't 
as many moats, or at least the moats aren't as deep as wide. Again, this metaphor is useful. Um, and some of them might just be, as you've said before, leaky. Let's let's talk a little bit about the source of them before we move on to that bit. Sources of competitive advantage, mate. Give yeah. us give us one. So so I, I think the one of the, you you sort of just hit the nail. I think um, with the the most important thing to think about is in some cases you actually need some form of moat to to just be in business. <laughs> right, because if exactly. you would not be in business, yeah. yeah I mean, you, if you didn't have the moat, you'd not be in business. Right. So an example, a, a perfect example is low cost, right? Okay. So low cost is a moat. Mm-hmm. And why do you need a low cost moat? Well, if you didn't, if you couldn't offer uh, a low cost service in or a product right. in a commodity industry where you really have no pricing power, right. you are not going to exist. So insurance is a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, banking is yeah. another good example. Yeah. I mean, you know, one bank from the other, there's no real difference, right? Um, so you try, you know, you try to be compete on price. You know, yeah. like so that's why we have these home loan wars. You know, I'll give you five thousand dollars, come to me. I'll give you three thousand dollars, come yeah. to me. I'll give you a bit of better rate, come to me, right? Because you all that effectively the same thing. Mm. So low cost is uh, one of those. Um, what I like about low cost too, mate. One of the one of the I, so we, you and I don't like commodity industries much, right? We're not big for miners, we're not big for drillers. It is though worth highlighting in this particular, in terms of low cost, the oil industry in particular, and I want to say Saudi Arabia specifically here. Now, the reality is that Saudi Arabia takes oil out of the ground at what is speculated to be somewhere around eight to ten dollars a barrel. That means that yes, it's still a commodity. You can't control price. That's all bad. But if the price is twenty, thirty, forty, fifty dollars a barrel. There's obvious amounts of profit there. Not only that, you can basically you run the industry. I mean, OPEC exists because not because I mean partly because these guys band together, but it wouldn't work except they're the low cost producers, right? If you're Saudi Arabia, you can start whatever the hell price war you want. In fact, that's what we're going through right now. Is the Saudis saying to Russia and Venezuela, guys, we want to be friends, but if you don't want to play the game my way, that's okay. I'm going to simply drop the price and, and put you out of business. Exactly, and and that's very important, right? So, I mean, we've got some uh, in our backyard, right? So, you know, BHP, um, yes. you know, uh, even Fortescue, right? So, I know, right? Yeah, so, I mean, Fortescue too has been able to, using technology, drop mm. its cost, right? And that makes it competitive right. Um, globally, yep. right? So, uh, Rio, again, um, and then they operate, you know, Rio and BHP, they operate, you know, globally as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, but again, using technology to drop the cost, I think, is, is really useful and it... Um, um, yeah, it's it's one way to keep the newcomers from coming and stealing your lunch, yeah. really. And right? again, so think about moats, right? The, the idea of a moat that um, it's to stop others taking over your business, taking business away from you. If you can't produce oil cheaper than Saudi Arabia or, or iron ore cheaper than BHP or Fortescue, yeah. there's not much chance you're going to... In fact, we saw during the uh, mining bust of the 2011, 2012 kind of years, we saw a couple of iron ore miners go broke because they simply couldn't compete with low, oil, low iron ore prices while the likes of BHP in Rio and Fortescue Asia and Vale in Brazil just simply dropped their price and kept doing, doing business. Um, that was a very, that's the very definition of moat in action is the ability to withstand and maybe even cause some trouble in the industry and then benefit when it comes out. Yeah. Who's your favourite low cost moat example, mate? Do you have one? Well, like, I mean, you know, the favorite, my favorite example would be like Geico, actually. If I, okay, yeah, the so US the, insurance company? Well, the Warren Buffett insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Go on. Um, yeah, I like, you know, like, I mean, that's a commodity industry. You can do a little bit of innovation here and there, but mm. I mean, it's a commodity industry where uh, low cost and I guess scale, which is the other. I was about sort of, to ask you yeah. that. So let's go with, let's say with low cost for a second, <laughs> but we'll get to scale. Right. So low cost, you know, they're able to offer really, you know, insurance at value prices mm. and that. You know, helps them basically win market share. Yeah. Right. So you wanted to talk about uh, scale. Let, let me let me share a, a low cost favorite with you. I 
I, I find low cost. So what was I thought was with? I find low cost a reasonably challenging concept because in a globalized and globalizing world, the the risk of not being able to remain low cost is pretty high. There's nothing often nothing proprietary about it. You either are lucky because you're in the right place, i.e. BHP or Saudi Arabia, um, or you have you happen to have a low lowest ish cost production. But you've said before on the podcast, certainly you know privately with all, with all of us, you know China's as a country, advantage of low-cost labour is fast being eroded, right? Because it's workers are demanding more money. There are other better organised, low-cost countries, Vietnam, Cambodia, throw some at me if you've got others that come to uh, mind. India, right. parts of Africa. Af- Africa's a whole big tangent I want to talk to you about another time because yeah. I think that's a, that, that is going to be one of the big stories of the 21st century. Exactly, yeah. Um, all right, so low-cost-wise, low I, I do find myself going back to the miners, actually. And again, I'm not... I, I, I almost feel guilty for using a miner as an example of a moat, right? Because they generally, I don't love investing in them. But I think, I think to your point, I think BHP's um, Pilbara iron ore operation is just phenomenally inexpensive. Eventually, the mine runs out, by the way. So again, is it really sustainable? Arguably not. Um, but I, but I like it. Also, I like your Geico example. But I, I'm going to leave you with that one because I want to now talk about scale. Now, actually, I, I'm going to ask you for something other instead of that. Can you give us for our listeners? An example, listed example of a company you could buy with a low cost moat advantage. So Geico, part of Berkshire Hathaway, I, I own shares. I'm happy for everyone to buy shares in Berkshire. Um, is there anything you can think of in Australia or, or overseas where you'd say that listed company would be worth buying for that purpose? If you can't, that's okay. I'm just trying to think about well, like, giving our listeners something they can do. You know, you know like I said, things like BHP, again, so I, I, I wouldn't say it's a recommendation to buy, but I mean, <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking to buy like BHP, yeah. then, you know, at, at a certain price point when, actually when the iron ore price has really dropped. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? Uh, that's a good point to buy mm-hmm. a stock like, you know, yeah. BHP or, um, or even Fortescue because, you know, their cost advantage um, will help them Absolutely. actually ride the wave, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one way to think about it. But those are the ones that I can think oh, of. Nice, okay, good. Thank you, cost. Um, yeah. So you mentioned Geico and you mentioned insurance and we've talked about BHP. Low cost to some degree tends to beget scale. Yeah. Scale to some degree begets low cost, but they're not the same thing. So at some level, um, being low cost because of the fundamental attributes of your operation, i.e., you know, BHP has a mine. Now, they can scale because they can dig deeper and wider and some of the super pits in WA are phenomenally large. I haven't been there, I've got to, I've got to get out there. Um, but, you know, so to some degree, that kind of creates scale at some level, but that mine is low cost because it's low cost, you know, and you can go deeper and you can go wider, but, you know, as long as it's there, as long as the iron ore is so close to the ground, to the surface, I should say, uh, super easy. Geico, a bit different though, right? They've... They probably were always low cost because of the way they originally offered insurance. In fact, Geico, G-E-I-C-O, was originally government insurer, government employees insurance corporation, hence Geico. Um, so it kind of chose its customers early, which I think is a really smart way of being low cost. By the way, if you can if you can segment a market and choose an attractive group of customers that have attributes that work, and you can prosecute that advantage, that's a great way to start. So I think they arguably started with low cost. Then they kind of scale kind of took over. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so scale is an interesting concept. I mean, as you said, they're very related to each other uh, because scale actually almost always enables you to be low cost right. if you want to be, yep. right? But, but the best way to think about scale is at a very high level, think about you know, your um, uh, head office operations, right? Yep. The larger yep. your operations, the effectively the head office cost yeah. can be spread across yep. your larger operation. Um, even if you think about things like software, right? If you write a piece of code and uh, or a piece of software and yeah, you want to sell right. it, yep. uh, I mean... It costs you X dollars to uh, to write, 
mm-hmm. and then it costs you maybe Y dollars to maintain. Yeah. But if you can sell it to the whole world, <laughs> that is scale. That's right. Right. We use the word operational, uh, operating leverage, yeah. but you know yeah. that's related to scale, right? That's huge. That's huge. And uh, so, so you put you put a million dollars into writing some code. Yeah. You, you, you want to create the next big? What are we going to? What are we going to write? Now, what software a, are we going to write? Let's call it zero, right? I mean, next go. big zero. All right. So zero X E R O, of course, the, the mm-hmm. accounting company spends. And it, well, I can't have the numbers on me, of course. Spends a million dollars creating this this fantastically complicated, difficult, seamless, all the great things that Zero is as a, as a user experience. It doesn't make a single sale. That's a lot of cost up front. But then when it sells the first unit, it might cost $10, $12 to find a customer. But after that, the next customer costs another $10 or $12 and so on and so forth. At some point, your first customer is horribly, horribly unprofitable because you've spent less money, you haven't covered the cost. By the time you get to your thousandth customer, you're starting to see the benefits of scale. By the time you get to meet the customer, this thing's raining cash because your software cost hasn't changed. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you bring in a dollar revenue, then $1,000 of revenue, then a million dollars of revenue, you're breaking even. When you get to $10 million of revenue for almost no additional cost, now there is yeah. marketing cost, as you say. But that, that comes, to, comes, to, comes to work pretty quickly. Exactly. And, and it's scale is, is it's, it's almost in a way, you know, they can go hand, hand in glove mm. together, right? If you, if you were very frugal in your cost structure to begin with, yeah. that helps you actually scale up. Yeah, the right. farther you scale up, that helps you actually be, reduce your cost. Yeah. And it can be a, a nice like little flywheel type of effect where, you know, the one enables the other. Um, I like that, yeah. Right. And, and, and I think we've seen lots of businesses that use scale and then purposefully keep their costs low so that they can keep competition at bay, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Amazon is a famous example. Like, you yes. know, Amazon's retail, for example, they don't really make much money on it. Right, right. Uh, per unit. So, per per yeah. unit, you know, but but at scale, yeah. it makes money because, yeah. you know, if yeah. I can make billions and billions of dollars of sale, then, um, you know, I can take a little bit of a cut on that mm-hmm. and I can still be profitable. I mean, we see scale even locally, like, you know, Woolworths mm-hmm. has scale. Mm-hmm. Right. So my example, we're going. Uh, well, to steal another one, Coles, <laughs> right? And and it's 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 so. Tell us about Woolies and Coles scale. What, how does that manifest? Well, like I mean, they've got you know they've got their presence everywhere. Yep. Right. And and so I mean, therefore that enables them to buy yeah. uh, at a good cost. You know, like they can negotiate with Coca Cola and say, well, you know, I want to buy that thing from you mm-hmm. at that price. Mm-hmm. And if you don't give it to me at that price. I might not stock yours and I'll just stock Pepsi. And when you say could, they actually famously did. So a few years back, Woolies and Coles went head to head and effectively Coles blinked because it had to. When yeah. Woolies decides, not only, so it destocks some of its lines, it also said, yeah, we're not going to promote your products. You can sell at full price, good luck. Now we know most Coke and Pepsi is sold at half price or close enough to it. Yeah. When, when Woolies says, no, nah, not going to do that anymore. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stop your promotions because we don't want to support you. We're going to support Pepsi for a while. Mm. Coke bled and bled badly. It had to come back to the table. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's, you know, I mean, you can call it market power, uh, abuse of that's, market yeah, power. Yeah, that's very close extent. to that, exactly. Um, but the, I mean, you know, like the reason I'm careful about these things is, is market power sometimes can be fantastic for customers, right? I mean, right. like as a customer, I'm happy to pay 20 cents to buy my, you know, can of Coke versus paying like $1 <laughs> for the can of Coke. I can spend the remaining 80 cents somewhere else. So right. uh, I think market power can be an advantage uh, from a consumer point of view. So can I tell you something fun? This is a slight tangent, but it's thing with groceries and market power and consumers. I read an article. I've never been able to find this article and I hope desperately that I'm not misremembering it. I, this was probably, I'm getting old, mate. This was probably... Oh, jeez. Might almost be 20 years ago actually I read this article. Um, something like, so it was a, there was a piece of research done. And in the US, for the previous tw- two decades, so let's go back 20 years to 2000, round some numbers up. Since 1980, an academic estimated 
that 75% of the increase in the living standard of Americans was put down to the Walmart effect alone. Because they've driven prices down to your point that the living standard, i.e. we can get more for our money, we're, we're, we're better off, you know, so there, there is more wages, which is one way to make, having increased living standards. The other is to have lower prices or better quality. Walmart, and again, one paper, maybe it's, maybe it's double, maybe it's triple what it should be. If it was 25%, to have that, that exact point, as you say, there is enormous consumer return potentially from that kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I'm very careful about, you know, complaining about market power. As long as there's some competition, even if there's like two or three, in fact, two or three big competitors is sometimes better than many competitors because <laughs> um, uh, yeah. the two or three big competitors can actually drive down prices for uh, uh, for consumers. And, and you know, that, that, that can be an advantage yeah. uh, for the consumer. So again, um, lots of, you know, gives and puts and takes here. But I want to talk a little bit about scale with Woolies because I want to I want to sort of do a bit of a, a quick run through as to how and why scale can work and as a as an investor, how we look for it. Now, it's not a recommendation of ours at all. Um, but the – so think of, let's think about Woolies, right? The more sales grow on a store-by-store basis, the more profitable is. You've got one store manager. If you can double your sales for that store, you only need one store manager still. You only need one shop as long as the store is big enough to hold the stock you want to carry. So your rent halves as a proportion of your sales. Your overheads halve as a percentage of sales. Your lighting is the same as a percentage, you know, so it falls by half as a percentage of sales. That, that in itself is a really big one. Now think also about if you're Woolies and you're sending out trucks to fill those stores, as the stores grow, as you add stores closer together, you make your transport so much more efficient, right? So if you can send one full truck to Woolies and back, to Woolies stores and back, that's a really efficient way to do it. If you've got to send the one truck to six stores across you know, a, a, a council area or a, or a region, if you've got to go you know, and, and do a day's worth of drop-offs to all those places, you know, every time someone's got to open the back door, get out, do that, you know, you've got to pay, pay for staff at the store level, all that stuff, super, super costly. If you can build your scale such that you send fewer trucks that are fuller, that makes a huge amount of difference. Your point about pricing, super important, right? So think about the ability to negotiate with suppliers. Suppliers are also bigger than just... That, that supplies are also, by the way, things like TV networks. So if you want to advertise on Channel 9, well, guess what? You get to call the tune because you're going to spend a lot of money with them. You can set your, you can not set the price, but you can demand a better deal because of the volume of advertising you bring. Um, right through the chain, there's so much of that is all about the power of scale. It lets them push down prices and or make more margin. And Willis has done a spectacular job of exactly that, ripping costs out because of scale, utilizing supplier power quite frankly um so you know right across the you know almost at every point the overheads as you say the head office cost same thing if all these doubles cost is head office staff don't have to double and shouldn't double um so you know the value of scale gets really really big really really fast back to geico that's exactly the story there right the more insurance policies they write the more overheads they can cover it pays the, the advertising is paid back you know if it's effective advertising in a much larger way it's a sensational one it's also pretty defensible right because if you've got scale at some point now myspace had scale went broke facebook's got scale and is possibly insurmountable woolies and coal certainly they may not be the most profitable business in the world we'll get back to by the way where there's a real advantages if they don't generate super profits but we'll get back to that towards the end uh, but you know the, once you get to a certain size who's going to go and beat Woolworths at their own game now who is literally big enough other than coals and the two of them together the big four banks same kind of story right scale there is just enormous 
Cool. All right. Next let's, one. Let's well, let's talk about network effects. So it kind of it, it kind of leads in from there. I talk about I talk about Facebook. I talk about Woolies has kind of got a bit of a network effect, but it's super weak. Just describe for us what network effects are. Maybe give us a couple of examples. Yeah. So net, network effects. It, the, the, this is a, you know relatively actually modern modern idea. I would say. Um, so the best example to think about is think about a marketplace, mm. and uh, think about buyers and sellers. Right. Mm. So if you've got more buyers on a marketplace. That would encourage more sellers to come there. Yep. But if more sellers are there, it encourages more buyers to come there, right? Okay. Um, so it's this beautiful um, effect of effectively the rich sort of getting richer sort yeah. of phenomenon, yeah. because you know you attract. Well, it's a virtuous circle, right? The, it's the, a virtuous circle. The better you are, the better you get. The better you get, the better you are. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I mean, we see this in, um, in things like uh, social media, for example, right? Yep. If all Huge. your friends are on Instagram, well, then you're on Instagram. That attracts all your other friends to Instagram. Yep. Um, and then once, once everybody's there, you know, moving away from it is hard. Now, it's, it's a, it's, um, it creates this effect too, right? I mean, it, it, in some ways, it creates a sunk cost. Mm-hmm. Because if you are, if you are in a, um, a celebrity, like, for example, you're a celebrity like Scott, he's got a bunch of, <laughs> he's, he's got a, God, you know, several thousand followers all. on, say, Twitter. <laughs> he can't quit Twitter because <laughs> if for him to quit Twitter, well, he would expect that his followers are going to follow him, right? But that may or They'll may not that. happen, right? So it's too much of a risk. And, and that, you know, so um, Scott's vested interest in being on Twitter yeah, yeah. means Twitter has has got something on Scott, you know, to keep him on Twitter, which in return keeps all his followers on Twitter mm-hmm. and, and so on. So, I mean, this you know, I'm using Twitter, but this, this thing works for uh, YouTube influencers. Yes, so, the yeah, influencers yeah. kind of are uh, in, indirectly indebted to these platforms. And, yep. and, 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 and this is a funny type of relationship, I find. So, I mean, this is that's another type of network effect. Uh, and, and with network effects, I think what happens is there's, a, there's this idea of a tipping point. Mm-hmm. I think if you get to that tipping point, so before the tipping point, you probably don't have, like, I guess, scale. Yeah. And if you don't have scale uh, in terms of, you know, the number of buyers and sellers for, say, online marketplace, you can be displaced. Yep. But once you've got scale, it really is hard to displace the leader. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can slowly deter away and slowly die, yeah. um, but it takes a long time, right? I mean, it's it's it, the, so in, in many ways, many of these modes we're talking about mm. are they're not necessarily expansion of profits. Right. They are basically defense. And, yes. I, and that's, I think that's how it is meant. They're, they're de- exactly defensive. Mm-hmm. It gives you time to deal with problems. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And it allows and, you And to, find other ways of growing. And find other ways of growing. It gives you the time to defend your fortress mm-hmm. uh, and to grow your, grow your empire Yep. in other ways, yep. right? So, um, yeah, so I've already said Amazon. Uh, I mean, I, I'll steal one more from Scott just because I can. Oh, I have the on. mic, Ryan. So, Kogan, for example, would be another oh, example. Oh, you know, again, it's a marketplace mm-hmm. where they've got their own things, they've got other things, but yep. they're creating these other verticals by bringing people, you know, by selling you energy and things like that. So, you know, yep. um, even white labeling energy, white labeling insurance. <laughs> it just it, You just create this web yep. Yep. where people are now like, you know, deeply tied yeah. <laughs> uh, to the platform. And if you're people deeply tied to a platform, then other people want to join that platform to right. sell other things because, well, you know, uh, there are lots of people deeply tied, right? Yep. And, yep. and therefore, that brings other customers there. So you know, this this nice virtuous circle. Nice. Uh, circle. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention a couple, mate. One of the one of the big ones is is what's been the one of the biggest outright shifts in in the last. Oh, geez, I want to say twenty years, maybe it's thirty years now. Um, since the introduction of the internet, is 
the, the movement, the, the destruction of the traditional media business model, uh, particularly print media here, and the movie of classifieds online. You know, at one point, it, I, I was thinking only the other day, the Sydney Morning Herald, I'm, I'm a Sydney guy originally, I'm still, still just out of Sydney. The Sydney Morning Herald, I swear to God, used to be about nine inches thick on Saturday. It was in two sections it was that, but you couldn't fold it otherwise. And the vast bulk of it was classifieds. It was, you know, buy and sell. It was job ads in particular. Saturday job ads were just bananas. Um, and the media companies made an absolute fortune. The, 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 what they call the rivers of gold, as you'll hear it referred to. Um, and that was great because people bought the paper because they wanted the job ads. If you're an employer, you advertise in the paper because that's what people were reading. And again, to your point, Doc, that's that self-reinforcing story of, well, I could go and put a job ad on a notice board somewhere. I could go and send a flyer out or I could do something else. But if everyone's looking in the Herald on a Saturday morning for the job ads, well, of course I'm going to put them there. So that, that for me is a big one. Now take it into the current environment. The likes of Seek, realestate.com and domain, I guess to some degree, uh, and car sales are just phenomenal network effect businesses. The simple reality, you're going to sell a house where else are you going to list it but realestate.com? I mean, you might do domain as well. So I think it's not only necessarily – this is an interesting question about winner-takes-all, mate, I suppose. I don't think real estate is winner-takes-all because the product is so expensive. You're not going to skimp on a second or a third platform just, just to save a couple of dollars if you can, if you can sell a million-dollar house in Sydney, right? You're simply not going to – you want to maximize your, your exposure to as many buyers as possible. But anyway, let's go realestate.com. So if I'm going to sell, I'm not going to not advertise there. Like I'm just not that silly not to do it. If I'm a buyer – and I figure that most of the volume is on realestate.com. Well, of course, I'm going to go there because why would I just check out domain only or, you know, docsrealestate.com? Um, that's wonderful. I'm sure that site is, mate. Um, you know, the, the simple reality is you, you're going to go where the you're going to go where the people are, and and in both sides. And the more people go there to sell, the more buyers will more buyers will turn up. The more buyers that are there, the more like your seller uses that platform. And it just has been a phenomenal, phenomenal success. Seek is the same. Car sales, again, same story, right? So many players. In fact, car sales tr- actually had a competitor. They're probably still around. They were trying to do it for free and they still couldn't beat car sales. Now, if you want to think about, you know, what's better than free? I think we often say apocryphally or, or just kind of that offhand comment, mate. Hey, what price is better than free? The answer is actually there's a lot of other better things than free. And part of, that, part of what's better is the network that you get access to that you literally would choose to pay for rather than free. And if you, can, if you can get someone, if your, if your service is more, more valuable than free, that's a pretty good business. And that is kind of the ultimate network effect, I think. Very nice. I wonder if uh, Facebook will have a charge. They probably could at some point. That'd be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, you know, they make money in so many different ways by stealing, <laughs> stealing your data. Oh, that, oh uh, Why would they charge, you know? There. It's best to say it's free <laughs> and, then, and, 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 and then to charge for other more valuable things. Now, these have always been, these have been positive moats thus far. There's one that's a little bit negative, a little bit sneaky maybe, if you want to call it that, a little bit kind of challenging. The old trapdoor moat. And I'm bringing it up now because you mentioned Facebook. Now, for me, as a, I don't use Facebook all that much. I use it sometimes for work. We have a Facebook page, of course, as our listeners well know. I have a Facebook page personally that I use for work. Um, but I don't use it personally a whole heap. I actually love Twitter. I much prefer Twitter than Facebook. Anyway, the simple reality is I'm never going to leave Facebook because I've now got 15 years of history on that. All of my friends, people I used to work with in England that I no longer have any other contact with other than on Facebook, I will still say on Facebook for. All those photos that come up and say, hey, this was five years ago, this was seven years ago, or someone so that pasted, posted either my wedding photo or their wedding photo on Facebook. It's one of those things, like, so there's a thing called a trapdoor moat, which is it's just simply too costly to leave. You are so ingrained with the could be a company that's got their software installed, right? Trying to, trying to, imagine trying to extract yourself from... 
I don't know, Microsoft Office, probably not even the strongest example of some other enterprise level software, inventory management systems, for example. If, if, you had an, if you're a big retailer and you want to change inventory management systems, can you imagine how hard it's going to be? You imagine how much better the new thing's got to be? If you're like, you know what, let's strip this whole thing out, throw it away, start again. Everyone's going to look at you like, are you absolutely barking mad? Like, why would. And you can charge a whole lot more once you're the incumbent. Facebook, similarly, I'm not going to leave Facebook, mate. I might use it less, but to delete my account, lose access to all that stuff. There's just not enough good reason to do it, right? So what do you, what do you make of a trapdoor? It's, it's a bit negative, right? It's a bit like, you know, they're keeping me because I kind of can't go anywhere else rather than I desperately want to be on Facebook. I'm like, well, I guess I've got to kind of still be there. So, you know, I'll make it sound better. We can call it the switching, uh, the switching cost. Right? <laughs> um, you know, if there's a huge switching cost. So, yeah, the, the enterprise uh, software that you know, like, you know, CRM, customer relationship management yep. software, you know, it's like doing a heart surgery, right? Mm. You don't do a heart surgery unless you have a really weak heart. Um, it, it just doesn't oh, make sense. Oh, yeah, okay, good point. Um, so, I like that analogy. And uh, so, yeah, unless the... The incumbent is doing something bad. Is really being, you know, uh, pathetic. You don't want to. Yeah, I mean, you, you have that switching effect even with your banks, right? I mean, you've got oh, a couple yeah. of bank, you know, bank accounts. You've got your home loan. It's just the effect of the paperwork involved yeah. to actually move. This, this is fascinating. This is actually this one is even more bizarre, but also more powerful. It's purely psychological. If you're Woolies, I get you don't want to destroy your entire inventory system. If I'm a bank customer. It might be like a week of pain while I've got to change some account details over, but yeah. it's not that hard. And I could probably save a fortune, particularly on a mortgage, for example. That we're all paying so much more than we should on our mortgages. And it's purely psychological. It's it's an amazing, powerful moat to have as a business. Exactly. Yeah. And well, you know, the Facebook one, for example, like, you know, I have not yet deleted my Facebook account, but I have not been on Facebook for now, maybe now two years. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, I think... Will you ever delete it though? Is, is part of you keeping yeah. exactly that point that so I think makes everything go away? With social networks, I think what happens is um, over time, the the happiness and the coolness of social network mm. um, or a particular application decreases, right? Because it's ultimately an app, right? Yeah, and, right. Um, so what I think Facebook has been great at is has been great at buying or finding the next big thing, right? That's so, true, yeah. I mean, so, you know, they, they supplanted Facebook with mm, Instagram. Mm. Um, you know, they have made lots of moves with WhatsApp mm. um, and they've been, they've been basically able to do that appropriately. Um, so I don't, I don't think the, the switching, there is a natural, uh, what I would say, uh, depreciating effect of, of an application like that, mm -hmm. and and, and so, so the switching cost might be as people just become less engaged over time, um, and and they get engaged in some other application, right? Because mm -hmm. if it would if it would seem that if there is something like Facebook, nothing like TikTok or Snapchat <laughs> or another, you know, mm -hmm. uh, social media. How did you know TikTok came from nowhere and it's like it's now a big deal? Right? I still don't understand TikTok. Although, although we do have our correspondence with the hashtag #GetDoc on TikTok, so it must be something. So it's it's you know like <laughs> the TikTok is the new kids. Thing. Do you know what I like? No right. one wants to be on TikTok. No one wants to get Scott on TikTok. They want to get you on TikTok. So I'm not sure what that says about me well, or that you. There's a lot of good things about me. Uh, it's, 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 You've always been one of the cool kids, dude. That's where the cool kids are. Right? <laughs> the cool kids used to be on Instagram. Right. Uh, and then there's Pin Interest. And now, like, you know, there, uh, there's TikTok. So, I never got Pinterest either. Here you so, go. Well, that's the thing, right? I, I think so. I, I think the switching cost here is that the. A large majority of people basically <laughs> stop using it. They're still there, but they're just not using right, it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that can happen over time. Never gonna leave. Would you ever delete your Facebook? Can you see a problem where you delete your Facebook account? 
Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, I have no reason to mm -hmm. like. I really don't care about the photographs that I have because in my all my okay. photographs are on 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 iCloud, yeah. and I get to see the memories that I want to see from iCloud. So I really actually don't no, care. No, the other people have posted though. Hey, here's your photo with your friend John from five years ago when you were doing this cool thing. That's right. I, I remember that. Gone there for like two years. I don't even okay. know who is there. <laughs> Fair I enough. actually really Fair don't enough. care about Facebook. <laughs> and and I, I know like a, a lot of my friends don't go to Facebook anymore. Right. Um, you know, it, it's Facebook has become the mom and pop and the grandma and the grandpa <laughs> service now. Like, you know, that's not, yeah, right. you know, you, that's what they go. I, I'm, with no disrespect, but that's, oh, no, that's totally, yeah, totally, that, no, that, that, that's the, uh, the evolution. There is that once, once you, once you, once your parents actually join the social network you're on, you know what's past the yeah, exactly. factor, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the definition, <laughs> right? And when I look at my daughter, my daughter says TikTok and nothing yeah. else. Yeah, so right. I guess TikTok is something. <laughs> it's a little bizarre. I did actually get a, you know, I went, I was going to tangent about TikTok. I'm not going to do that. Um, so here's the thing. I, so yeah, look, I think Trapdoor Moat, really super effective. Um, if you think of companies in the ASX, a business like Technology One, for example, has some sort of, or switching cost, we'll call it as you want to call it, give it a nicer name. Um, there, there are definitely switching costs there. I would argue at some point, the zeros of the world have some degree of switching cost, although the more these things are online and to some degree mappable, they're easier to move. So, um, but, but I think you know, if, you, if you supply an enterprise client who's made their own, Changes. That's really where the holy grail is, right? If I can, if I can swap out, I, mean, I can probably map the zero fields to the reckon fields to the intuit fields to the whatever, and change reasonably quickly. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hassle. I'm probably not going to bother, but I could. If I've got an inventory management system, I keep using that example, but any other customer relationship, as you said, and I've made some changes and made some linkages and added it to my systems, and I've customized a couple of fields for this particular purpose. The more custom it is, the deeper the claws are in that in that customer, right? The harder it is for the customer to simply walk away. Yeah, on the ASX, a lot of the software companies, especially the mm. the the enterprise software companies that sort of sit in the middle, um, and like so, one that I, I like a lot is like Elmo, for example, right? That, yeah. Um, not know, the not the Sesame Street. Not the Sesame the Street. So this is the <laughs> HR, uh, human resource, uh, you know, retention. I love they call it. Know. Of all the, of all the things they could have called it, they named themselves after a two and a half year old furry monster. I yeah. So so I mean, and then I've got payroll. So I think those are things. <laughs> yeah, are payroll's very, huge. Um, are very sticky. Um, zero, I think, is sticky again because you've got so. Much. It's it's just the pain and moving things. You know, like people like yeah. QuickBooks, for example, from Intuit, they will try to help. They'll try to meet, and all enterprise mm. software companies do that, right? If they, mm. they want to win your business, they will help you migrate, right? Yes, exactly. But there has to be a strong value proposition and yeah. a strong even reason. if they're going to help you, even if they're going to pay for it, you're still like, oh, I'm still not sure I need to. Like, yeah. unless there's enough of a benefit, like the, the current system I got works well enough, and yeah. it, it costs me whatever it costs me, and maybe I can save a few bucks. Maybe it's a little bit nicer, maybe it's a little bit more user friendly. But man, I mean, I know with a couple of companies, I can't think of any. I think maybe one of the pharmacy wholesalers. When they announced the big plans to change their ERP systems, the enterprise resource planning systems, inevitably, about 50% of the time, they go, oh, looks take a bit longer than we expected or the budget's a bit more than we expected. And, yeah. and I don't, like, you know, I just if I'm, if I'm a CEO of a big company, I'm like, guys, do whatever you can not to change the system. Like, if it's genuinely, desperately better, we're missing something enormous, okay, fine. Otherwise... Yeah. Surely, we're better things to do than, than risk the business, risk profitability, risk you know public kind of you know reputation damage on yeah. getting this wrong. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing there is that as you know, software is evolving, right? So, um, if you think about ERP systems and you're missing something, mm. most likely that piece is another software that okay. would likely plug in with the existing software you've got, right, right. right? So, a lot of this, even if you're using CRM and yeah. you you're using CRM software and you need you know something else, yeah. that's probably a pluggable thing that you. 
you can use. <laughs> so, I, I mean, the only cases where, I mean, and that's the reason a lot of these, uh, a lot of companies now have like, multiple software pieces mm. is that, you know, instead of switching one piece with something else, it's actually easier to buy another addendum piece. Yeah, right. And add it. And plug it in. Yeah, and exactly. Plug it in. Exactly. And, and that's what, you know, interoperability sense, actually yeah. helps yeah, yeah. everyone. It helps the incumbent. It helps the yeah, new guys. Yeah, yeah. And, and it helps you, you know, maintain, you know, stay in business. So I think, you know, the Zeros does that, right? With all these apps and so on. That yeah, yeah, right. The whole platform thing it's got going. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The next one we'll talk about is the first move. These aren't in any order, by the way. They're just kind of they're kind of tangenting into themselves, which is nice. Nice little segues. First mover advantage is a funny one, right? It's traditionally not been a huge moat. I mean, if you get a couple of years advantage as a new car maker in nineteen twelve, then I guess you sell a few new cars. But people kind of learn the industry as it goes, and they can compete with you over time. If you're the first grocer in an area, you know these things are copyable potentially. Even Amazon back in nineteen ninety seven, if or, or Netflix, if the competition been a bit more aware of it, they could have happily stomped on those businesses, right? Blockbuster could have bought Netflix, gone into streaming. Walmart could have realised the Amazon threat and gone online before Amazon got there. You know, there are, there are history would have been very very different in, in a lot of cases if the incumbents had actually understood the threat better. That being said, first move advantage can be really meaningful if you can get ahead and stay ahead. You talk about innovation being a, a moat before, and I want to kind of draw it to that. But I want to stick with first mover for now. We'll talk about innovation more broadly in a second. We've only got a couple more to go. So. First move advantage really strikes me, mate. We've talked about, I, I was late to the party on the success, the investment opportunity for cloud accounting, for example, right? And my thought basically was, you know, where is the opportunity? What do they have that no one else has got? All that kind of stuff. If it's so easy to choose or change to zero, it's easy to change away from zero. Why would I bother? The thing I missed early on that I, I came to appreciate was the first move advantage of being the first new, big, cool cloud accounting system where it offered a step change in the industry. So before that, in the old days, everything was in a shoebox. Then it was all on a, a mainframe computer in some office somewhere. Then there was the locally installed stuff. So the likes of, again, Reckon, Intuit, I can't think of who else, MYOB, of course, I keep forgetting those guys. They had a software, you buy their software, a bit like Microsoft Office, right? You buy the software, you download it, you install it on your machine, um, and that's and you use that software, right? And if you you, you you might download a file and email it to your accountant or send him a floppy disk to, to do, your, do your tax. Zero effectively, at least here in Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand company, of course, Australasian company, I like to say, um, they really bought that whole idea of, hey, if you're going to change, here's what you would change to and here's why. And they gave a really compelling reason in a new way. So not, not the first accounting software at all, not even the first cloud accounting software, but the first kind of really big, new, cool, easy um, way to do this in a way that your accountant made easy if you put the data in your account and could see it live, all that kind of good stuff that came with it. And they really, by just by virtue of being the first guys to do it big, new, different, um, they made a, just a massive, massive difference to to the business, right? They, they really changed the story um, when it comes to that. Again, they're, they're a first move in a really, really different way. And I think it kind of, to some degree, rolls into the Facebook MySpace. Well, MySpace, well, MySpace was the first mover at, at in absolute sense. The scale, the first, the first person to get to scale, maybe that's what it is more than anything, has just a massive advantage. And I, in so many industries, if I look right across the, the, the world, almost almost unbeatable once you get to that point. If you can get there first and you can be the disruptor, yeah, people could change away from zero, but why would you? There was a, there was a clear reason to change away from locally installed accounting software. Once you've got one cloud accounting package, do I really want to change from zero to MYOB, MYOB to zero? Probably not, because it's kind of roughly the same as most of the same stuff. Getting there first was a huge advantage. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I mean, although there's history is replete with examples of where the first actually does not win, right? Right. But first to scale, as you pointed out. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly. Uh, is likely the winner. Um, there are lots of interesting examples. I mean, you know, the, the if you think of the first smartphone, it was, uh, you know, something like a Palm Pilot, for example. That's right. One of those. <clears throat> Back in the day. Then, then there was. Um, uh, Blackberry, yep. you can have one of those that. too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mean, they all got supplanted by something That's else. Point. Yeah, right, um, right, right. And and often, and you know, it's hard to say what are the reasons. Sometimes, mm. sometimes there are you know, there's stasis that happens in a company because yeah. um, you know they they think that they've got the best product and they're not willing to move very quickly. Right. So I mean, first mover is a good thing. Yep. It can be a benefit, but it's. I don't look at it as an advantage as such. Like right. I mean, you need that advantage to show somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Okay, that's a good point. So yeah, Man, you, need, you need to be being there first is important as long as you've got something worth being first too. <laughs> yeah, and, and and or that the first enables you to create some of the other modes, right? Yeah, good point. Okay. Right. So you know, if being first hel- helps you become low cost, right, right, that's an advantage. Right, right, right. If being first helps you create, um, um, you know, switching costs, yes. that's an advantage. Yes. But just being first somewhere actually by itself. Yeah. Is is not an advantage. All right, so let's go to switching costs. Back to switching costs, actually, because it's one I was going to talk about in a different way. But I I like your segue better. So the I was going to call it ecosystem as, as an advantage, but it's probably it's probably largely switching costs. It's, ecosystem is probably a version of switching costs. So it's probably worth yeah. going back to that one we talked about just before. Um, to some degree, you know what what is I mean, Apple's arguably we'll talk about Apple. Apple's devices were better. They were cooler. They did stuff nicer. All that kind of stuff is true. There, there was a really powerful though component of that, which was the the very ecosystem itself. BlackBerry had kind of an app store of sorts. Nokia didn't have anything; it just was a, it was the best phone at the time. You get supplanted very quickly. When you've got something that keeps your customers around, when you can create an ecosystem, when you can create both recurring revenue in an absolute profitable sense, but that sense of like there's a there's, there's a cost to leave. If I if I drop put my phone down, pick up an Android phone, I lose all of my apps, all of my settings. I'm used to using the device. Maybe I use FaceTime with my friends. You know, there are those things that are, they're part network effect, they're part uh, scale, they're part all those things. But there's a real ecosystem value here, which is I think part of switching costs that we maybe miss out on a little bit. And the likes of Zero have done a great job of adding apps, creating their own ecosystem. Apple create a great ecosystem. That, that, that's a really meaningful and frankly very new, at least in, in kind of, you know, long-term history terms, a very new way of, retaining or creating a moat around what you do is having your customers either transact with you regularly or add to your software or service in a way that kind of makes this, creates this ecosystem or or benefits from that. Yeah, so I mean, what you're also hinting at is some of these companies, basically what they would try to do is they would um, build on multiple of these angles, right? So, right. You, you know, if you think about Apple, for example, um, the, again, like, you know, it, it's easy retrospectively to cook up a story that would make sense, right? right but right. there's a lot of, I, I think there's a lot of randomness and variability that comes into play. So, right. if you go back in history, Apple announced the iPhone in 2007 and it didn't at that time announce the App Store. The right. App Store was actually yeah, yeah. announced later. Yeah, that's right. Right, but what you Apple? You couldn't even use multiple apps at the first time. You had to close an app to open a new one. If I can yeah, and, and and I mean it was default stuff, right? Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. you yeah. you know it was the phone with the music player and an right. internet browser, right? Yes, so yeah. An internet browser basically was your app. And because they were even there first, there were other there are other kind of tap screen, touch screen, browsery kind of 
I had a, I had an o, remember the O2 XDAs? Do you remember those? No, I had never seen that. It was it was a, it was a part Palm Pilot, part iPhone back in the very very early days. Yeah. Terrible, and the internet was slow, right? Anyway, keep going. Yeah, so uh, I think there what Apple did is is leveraged is its developer community with the Mac, yeah. and used that to create the App Store and a developer community around it, right? right, right. And I think that helped them to some extent. Do you think they ever intended to create an ecosystem? Do you think it was a deliberate view or is that just something that kind of started to come into view and they realized and capitalized on it really quickly? Well, I think, like, I mean, the App Store, I think, was a deliberate creation mm. because, you know, um, the App Store was something that they had thought that this this is how the mobile ecosystem should evolve. Right, okay. Right? Um, I think the, the you know, and, and from what I've read, the, the iPad was actually under construction before the iPhone. <laughs> Wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, uh, but uh, but they decided to that you know this should come first. <laughs> That's and that amazing. Come, uh, I what would happen if they done it the other way around? What would it cost them, right? If, you, if someone else got to the smartphone first, would well, be it's, yeah. Again, it's hard to know yeah, um, yeah. and hard to tell. And um, great decision. Yeah, and, and and then of course, like I mean, over time, I think companies evolve and they see like you know we can create an ecosystem or a platform yeah. or various reasons for people to stick to a to a platform yeah, and. Yeah. You know, that, and as you pointed out, you know, that can be a good thing for a company. Mate, let's, let's move to the next one. My um, traditional second favorite, I think Network Effects is my favorite uh, mode. I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, my second favorite is brand. And I think this is, you talked about defensibility and, and not necessarily about maximizing profit or maximizing growth. I will, I will slightly disagree in the sense of brand in particular, but others as well, in the sense that You've only got to walk through a supermarket. Now, these aren't going to be the brands of tomorrow. These aren't the Apple brands. These aren't, you know, the, the big the big global brands. But think, I've, I've worked for a couple of companies in my past. Heinz is one. Um, Heinz can, can consistently charge 20% more for baked beans than SPC can, right? And that is not, it's got nothing to do with, I promise you, the recipe or the flavor or the can shape or the color of the label. It's all that they've created a perception in people's minds. Coke and Pepsi, same thing. We're both sitting here drinking Coke, largely because that was in my fridge, so you had less choice than I did. Um, you know, the, that, the, the ability for Coke to charge more than Pepsi just, just consistently. For no, I mean, no good reason. In fact, in blind taste tests, Pepsi wins. Um, Coke has created a brand. Heinz has created a brand. Apple, I mean, Apple phones, man. Like the money they, those guys make on Apple phones compared to the Samsungs of the world. There is a real, and you can, okay, the phone is just better, and that's probably true to some degree, of course, but... I, I would argue there's a there's a massive part of the the price premium is a brand premium. As a business, if you can consistently charge more than your competitors, a it gives you more chance of being around <laughs> successful. But I think it actually does give you the ability to earn. I mean, SPC's gone broke a dozen times. Coke's you know sells it and doesn't sell it, and you know um, that brand alone, or not alone, I should say alone, but but in in a lot of ways is a meaningfully large contributor to actually being able to deliver outsized profits. I think. Yeah, I love actually brands. You know, it'd probably be my actually favorite. I mean, Ooh, okay. uh, I didn't expect I, that. If I had to pick something, you know, if, if I have to talk about, like, I'm not a big on modes as such. Like, I mean, I think yeah. about the idea behind them and how they can be applied. And we will get to that in a second. Um, but <laughs> um, yeah, brands, brand, brand can be really powerful. The fact mm, that people, mm. you know, lined up in front of Apple stores to buy, oh, I know, uh, an iPhone, right? I or mean, you're camping. Hype DC sneaker shops to, to you know for hours, for hours hundred long to buy the new sneakers. Yeah, well, I mean, on the, the sneakers one that's isn't that more about discounts, right? If you're if you're the first hundred customers to come, you get discount. <laughs> oh no no no, the, some of the, the, the or is it for the you, new? You, yeah, if my, so if you if our listeners have, have no sixteen year old fashion. sons, well, no me either, right? But um, they literally the, the, this new this new I, 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 I'm going to I can't make up an example, right? Because I literally <laughs> don't know. They will literally line up around the block 
on the Monday morning when the new Nike something is released. And that's just, that's exclusive to yeah. them. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and you want to get it. There's only so many available, so you line up to get to be the first in the door. Okay. But yeah. bananas. That, anyway. so, so, I mean, that happens, right? I mean, as you know, and my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, do you know that a Louis Vuitton uh, hat <laughs> costs $600? <laughs> Why would anybody pay $600 for a hat? Oh, there you uh, go. But you know, like, I mean, but the fact that she knows. She's a daughter's father. She's a father's daughter. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but the fact that a 12 year old knows that a Louis Vuitton, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is something. It knows Louis <laughs> Right, Vuitton, good point. Okay, right? yeah, 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 good point. Knows good that point. it couldn't cost 600 bucks. Yep, yep. You know, probably at some day she's probably going to line up and want to have a Louis Vuitton hat because she knows about it. You so know what I mean? We were sharing only yesterday the Bugatti watch that cost more than a house. $580,000, is that right? Why would anybody get a Bugatti watch? Isn't that bizarre? Anyway. Just get an Apple watch. <laughs> oh, God, here we go. Anyway, so brand, hugely powerful, um, really can convey long-term, you know, in terms of sustainability and pro- sustainable profit, doesn't necessarily give you growth. And so there's other, again, as Doc said, one one. One moat, well, more moats are better than one. One is better than none. But if you've got a brand, if you've got a brand, again, Coke, uh, the Coke business, if it could char- only charge three quarters of the price, is an incredibly different business. If it had to charge Pepsi prices, very, very, very different. It must drive the Pepsi guys nuts because they're like, our, our drink wins. <laughs> you know? People objectively say we prefer Pepsi and yet they go and buy Coke in larger numbers and pay more for it for a, you know, a black fizzy liquid that's kind of a sweet. So... It's kind of amazing. Mate, we're going to get to your, well, maybe, maybe the, the, the nub of the conversation after 45 minutes in a minute, but there's one more left. Um, I want to talk about monopoly power. You mentioned monopoly earlier. Um, there are legal monopolies <laughs> and there are legal monopolies and there are different sources of monopoly power. You can be, I would argue that our banks have some degree of oligopoly power, which is kind of a version of scale, but the four pillars policy at some point is a legalized oligopoly. You can't have fewer than that. The treasurer won't let them be taken over by each other or by the you know the foreigners. So that gives a really strong moat in and of itself. Patents, another monopoly power. If you have the patent for Wi-Fi or for 4G or for whatever, um, another again drugs, huge monopoly power there. If you're the only licensed player in lottery sales, for example, huge amounts of monopoly power there. Again, you can't always turn that into something. But man, I'd rather be the only one selling something rather than one of two or five or twenty-five companies selling that same thing. That can be, I mean, and the history of pharmaceuticals up until about 10 years ago was just a phenomenal story of just sequential monopoly power. Yeah, I agree. Like, you know, those are, you know, by by regulation or by, um, uh, I guess, uh, proprietary IP, yeah. uh, intellectual property, um, you know, you can have this monopoly power. So, I mean, you know, uh, the uh, the drug companies, the mm. you know biotechs, for example, execute on that a lot. Yep. I mean, that's what helps them actually win, and right? that's mm-hmm. what helps them spend billions to right. actually uh, you know develop drugs because they yeah. get yeah. they get you know they, they have a legal monopoly given to them via patents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think monopoly power is uh, is can be useful, but there, it's restricted in in most places. You would see that you know it's an olig- oligopoly. Mm. There's still enough competition. I mean, yeah. you know, um, and oligopolies typically only work when you know it's a relatively small market. In mm-hmm. in you know you, if you have a big market, then you'd expect a lot more competition right. to be there. Um, sometimes natural oligopolies emerge because of the nature. Um, of the market, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we if we think about places where network effects take um, yeah. take effect, yeah. uh, network effect take, takes effect, then <laughs> those tend to be you know two or three player markets. Oh, phone and PC operating systems is one that immediately comes to mind, right? The iOS versus Android or yeah. Windows versus Mac. If you if I come up with the Scott operating system that's not compatible with anything else, 
I'm not going to be able to sell it to many people. Yeah, like I, I mean, I mean, so that's you know, so if you if you you know, that's where so, those are places where some amount of network effects, some amount of first mover advantages help you, mm-hmm. um, you know, entrench yourself. Um, there are other examples, you know, like Amazon's uh, marketplace and eBay, for example, right? Um, if if you want to have a marketplace, then you mm. need to be niche something to compete with those guys because otherwise it's hard, right? Yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that you know there can, can't be any other marketplace or can't be any other online player because. Mm-hmm. You know, you can always find a niche to operate, but you know, it creates, um, you know, it creates a place where you know you can have like some dominant players and maybe a few fringe players mm-hmm. on the side. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is a it's a good one if if you're in that position and uh, you'd rather have it than not. If, if, you, <laughs> if you have it, it's good for you. Yeah, if yeah. you don't have it, it's too bad. <laughs> Governments have done a nice job, by the way, of selling things that have monopoly power and making a lot of money out of it. If you sell the uh, the poles and wires, for example, in New South Wales, electricity poles and wires that have been licensed or, or leased to another player, um, if you if you get to be the owner of a monopoly asset, um, there's a lot of money in that. And state governments and federal governments have done very nicely uh, <laughs> giving giving or, or selling monopoly assets at very very high prices, which is probably good for the taxpayer. Mate, let's move on now because they most of. I mean, you can argue about how many types of moats there are, and they overlap, as you say. And different companies are exploiting them to different degrees. A lot of companies don't have them as much as people like to think they do because they're simply not as defensive an, an attribute. Yeah, you can say, well, okay, Retailer X has a moat for scale. It's like, well, yeah, but it's you know, just because the biggest with thirty-five stores doesn't mean it's always going to be the biggest or can usually prosecute that to the, the largest degree. They're all the moats that we've talked about for a long time. Warren Buffett talked about for a long time. Most of the investment community takes for granted, at least for established businesses, where where change doesn't happen quite so quickly. See, in May 21, 2018, Elon Musk on an earnings call said, and I quote, I think moats are lame. Now, that was a phrase that, that echoed around the Twitter sphere, the, the investing world, the shot heard around the world, as they say. Um, that was a big call by a bloke who's frankly good at big calls. <laughs> but he then went on to say what matters is the pace of innovation. And this is the conversation, that's why we're talking about it now, this is a conversation we had this week with our team internally, just to kind of, you know, bat that around a little bit. To some degree, the, the existence of a moat, the value of a moat, the importance of a moat, I think to some degree, let me make a statement, you can agree or disagree, is more to do with the type and age of the company or the technology or what's actually happening in a market. Maybe it goes back to first move advantage to some degree. Musk's point is, who cares? If you can out-innovate your competitors, you're going to win. I'm paraphrasing, he didn't say exactly that. Of course, he just said what matters is the face of innovation. Um, I think Musk is implying, and you know know Musk better than I do, but I think Musk is implying that a moat is, to some degree, as you say, defensive, or at the very least, benefits from the status quo. You know, if you've got a great brand, that's useful until your brand is no longer as valuable. If you've got network effects, that's great until someone's got a better network effect or until someone you know, makes, renders that network effect useless because of some other reality, right? Uh, MySpace and Facebook, great example. We, w- we would have said, if we we're sitting here, we would have said, MySpace got a great network effect, wonderful business, blah, blah, blah. It's already got 400 million customers. How, you know, how much more can you, do you need? And the answer was you know, a couple of billion and that's what Facebook completely destroyed them. Innovation as a, a, a better or superior function than a moat. I assume you agree, maybe you don't. If, if you do, or how, to the extent that you do, how do you put innovation and moat side by side? When is innovation better than a moat? When is a moat better than innovation? 
Yeah, that's, that's, you know, so I actually agree with that. You know, I wrote an article about that uh, for our members, you know, saying how Warren Buffett is wrong and Elon Musk is right. Oh, uh, I mean, Warren Buffett never Sorry, sent, uh, Warren Buffett never sent anybody to space. <laughs> so, uh, whereas Elon Musk has just sent people to space. Probably I can't Elon disagree Musk with gonna be, that. He's going to probably send people to Mars or Moon. So, I mean, you know, if I had to choose, I'll choose Musk over uh, Buffett and anybody else. <laughs> so the guy knows a few things about innovation. Space, the final frontier. Uh, well, you know, like, yeah. So I, I think he's making a valid point. Um, his, his, his point really is that you can, this really works in places where um, you can invent new things. Right, right. It's hard to invent a new way of banking because it, you know, you have to jump. Uh, you could invent new way of banking that makes mm. banking substantially superior, but you have to jump so many um, legal hoops, regulatory hoops, government hoops, this hoop, that hoop, uh, you know, four pillar hoop. That it is, it is going to be very difficult to innovate there. So I think mm. the moats really matter. In uh, the way I look at it, moats are very important for the 20th century business that okay. wants to stay alive. Right. Moats are not that important for the 21st century business okay. uh, because the 21st century business is just being created right now, mm. right? And um, so moats are more of a preventive preventive measure uh, from an attack, whereas mm. innovation is really a way of building this you know, new empire, new market, new opportunity, mm. new something, right? And, and often what happens is when, you use, when, you're, when you're innovating and you're innovating at speed, you can actually keep at bay those competitors that you're trying to disrupt or that area that you're trying to disrupt because those people are maybe not innovating at a fast enough pace. Yeah, right. right? They might have a moat currently. So, you know, mm, mm. Um, if it's, if it's, it's uh, vehicles, then, you know, somebody like General Motors, for example, has a manufacturing moat, but that manufacturing moat is only going to work for a portion of time, mm. right? At, at beyond that portion of time, it's not very useful, right? And in, in that portion of time, if you have not actually uh, started thinking about outmaneuvering the competition, mm. then you will get outmaneuvered. This is what typically, you know, that's what happened with BlackBerry, for example, right? Mm. BlackBerry got um, outmaneuvered by um, Apple, right? So, so I think, you know, I really like to think about, when I think about companies, I really like to think mm. about um, innovation. And I think mm. in technology companies, um, especially Silicon Valley companies, one of the things in Silicon Valley is popularized in, by Intel, um, uh, who is you want to own as much of the core technology. Right, okay. The more of the core technology you own, the harder it becomes for somebody else to outmaneuver. And this is this is interesting because uh, the way globalization has worked over mm. the years, mm. especially in things that involve manufacturing, is we have um, we have gone f we have distributed manufacturing, right? So if you think about manufacturing anything, uh, even like you know, if it's an airplane, then you know somebody <laughs> makes the tail, yeah. somebody makes yeah, the rudder, right, right. somebody makes the engine, somebody makes the seat, yeah, somebody yeah. makes this, somebody makes that, somebody writes the software, somebody right, you know, pulls the cable, and then you put it together. <laughs> yeah, right. So you you find different players who are good at something, and you integrate it together. Yeah. That though, now if you if that though, however, 
reduces your pace of innovation mm. because to change something on the software, you need maybe something to change on the rudder. <laughs> yeah, right. So now you need to know the schedule of the rudder innovation to actually change the innovation mm. on your um, on your software side, yeah. right? Well, that's why the whole airplane cycle is so long, right? Because you're going to say, let's make the 797, let's pick a, pick a number. Um, you've got to say, right, we're going to make the 797 in 2025. I'd like all this stuff to happen. Guys, bring us the things that you've got. Let's see what we can do with it. Let's see how they all work together. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, something that Intel was the first one, I think, that, you know, took it on its head and said, okay, we need to control all the core technologies. Apple did that then mm. beautifully by saying, okay, we're going to write, we're going to make the f- smartphone, we're going to make the chip for the smartphone, we're going to own this operating system, mm. we're going to own the key apps. And that allows us immense control on what we are doing in our cycle of innovation, right? right? right, right. Um, as long as, here's the thing though, as long as you end up, so I would say the downside of that is, you got to make sure you're first, because <laughs> if you if you're going to try and do it all yourself, it's great if it works. If if Intel had done that and had not been able to innovate faster than the the, the people they otherwise were previously just you know who were supplying them, at some point you, you do you increase the potential upside. I think you also meaningfully increase the risk, right? You've got to you've got to be pretty gutsy and you've got to be pretty right because if you, if I say look no I'm, I'm going to ignore that I'm going to do it myself. Um, maybe maybe you develop the BlackBerry while everyone else is developing the iPhone. At, at some point, BlackBerry says, no, no, I'm not going to use touchscreen. I'm going to use this scroll wheel. That'll be better. Or, you know, bad example, but you know what I mean. Um, it's, it's both a massive opportunity, but it's also meaningfully increases the risk, I think. Yeah, I think you're right about the risk. I mean, I mean the thing is that most companies, what they do is they in-house the key technology over mm-hmm. time, yeah. right? So the first iPhone did not use an Apple processor, right? It, it was only, I, th- I think, in the iPhone uh, 4 right, uh, okay. that, you know, introduced the Apple processor. But, you know, today, one would say that Apple makes the best processors on the planet right. uh, for a smartphone because it is so finely tuned, it's so fast, it's got, you know, it's got this five nanometer design, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't manufacture them, right? Manufacture yeah. somebody, third-party manufacturers, and you can still have third-party manufacturing it, but right, you right. still control you know, the core technology, yeah, yeah. right? And, um, and uh, you know, like, you know, they would like to make cheap... So one of the interesting things was their fight with Qualcomm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why was the fight with Qualcomm? Because Qualcomm is charging them, uh, you know, as much as they can. And to have a 5G As phone. you would, yes. Right. So what is Apple trying to do? Apple yeah. is trying to actually outmaneuver Qualcomm, and that's a really hard technology, by basically building their own 5G chips. Right. right? But you can do that in parallel because they just recently bought the entire 5G team from Intel. Right, okay. Right? There so Apple bought the Intel 5G team, and I was going to work on it while using Qualcomm chips. And you know, yeah. everything is, is possible. And yeah, for, yeah, right. Intel, for Qualcomm, that's fine, because it can keep selling its 5G chips yeah. to all the Android players. Yeah, right, okay. Right? It knows that eventually it's not going to be selling the 5G chips to Apple, but mm-hmm. that's okay for uh, for um, for um, for Apple and yeah. for Qualcomm. Yeah, right, right, but, right. But why is that important? It's important because if you want to develop wearables, then you really want tight control on the mm. 5G chips because mm-hmm. if you have tight control on the 5G chips, you're going to control the power supply, you're going to the power drain, the the CPU performance right, that right. relates with it, right? Therefore, it gives you this immense advantage of the ability to de- design wearables yeah. that others can't. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think yes, there's a chicken and egg problem yeah. here, but. <laughs> I think a lot of. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it, by the way. I'm just, I just wanted to highlight that both of those are true. If if Intel takes the lead in chips and and Apple spends five years trying to catch them, then Apple might wish to use Intel chips. If the reverse is true, Apple's very excited to use its own chips. And there's always yeah. that tension when you try and do it yourself. Yeah. Well, what I think is true, though, is most companies don't try. 
That's true. That's absolutely right? true. <laughs> Most companies don't try. Yeah. And it's like people, a lot of people would not try stuff. Yes. If you don't try stuff, you don't know. Yes, true. <laughs> right? So, uh, so I think it's it's one of those, you know, innovators dilemma is almost like, you know, do you, yeah. you know, it starts with the point, right. do you even want to innovate? Right. Yes. Right? Yep. Uh, and if you don't want to innovate, well, yep. you've got some problem. Right. And so that's uh, uh, that's a really good place to stand, mate, because this is where, look, I, I'm a fan of moats, I think. Um, I, I, you know, I think for... Depending on the type of business, depending on the type of industry, you always though want to be desperately careful. What, I, what I've loved about Amazon, I had another example the other day, I've forgotten temporarily, but I'll try to remember it again. Amazon had a wonderfully large and growing online book selling business. And it literally went to destroy its own book selling business by starting the Kindle line of e-readers. It sent the team across the country. Literally, go over there and do it. Let, don't let us get in your way. Don't, don't, don't let the fact that we sell physical books stop you making an e-reader because Bezos saw the future and wanted to make sure he was ready to disrupt his own business if, if that was a better future, right? or at least if it was going to happen anyway. And I think to your point, that's the innovative dilemma story is if you're already making good margins doing something and you're already really successful at it, you want to defend that as much as you possibly can. And that absolutely, it's hard to have, it's hard to be an established incumbent and remain innovative. That that's a really tough thing to do. If you think about, I don't know, pick, pick any example, right? Um, the, the the reluctance of the the traditional car makers to adopt EV technology. In fact, they tried to destroy it for twenty years, right? Pre pre market Tesla. Um, if you've seen who killed the electric car, it's a fa- fantastic kind of between the car makers and the oil companies. <laughs> rather rather than saying, hey, we could be we could you know, we could get there first. They said, let's kill it and keep doing what we've always done because we've always done it. And that was great. I mean, it made them 20 years worth of profits, right? So you can't at one level say, well, maybe that was the right strategy for a while. But if you can't, if the innovation is inevitable anyway, all you're really doing is putting off that 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 future. I think that's a dangerous place to be. And what I do agree with you is that's the risk with moats is if you only ever say, but this is what I do and this is why I'm better at it, the risk is someone will say, well, I'm going to do something different or something else better or I'm going to replace you. There's no point being the best horse and horse and buggy maker, you know, with a competitive advantage. I've got, I've got, I make the best wheels, the best buggy wheels in the country because I've got this proprietary technology. It's like that's all fine, dude. But when the cars come along, you know, it doesn't matter how good your technology is, it doesn't matter how good your brand. We're the, we're the best brand buggy maker in the country. You know, we've got we've got scale, we've got network effects, we've got low cost. That's all fine until someone literally just simply goes straight past you. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. That that's a really good point. So I guess maybe maybe is it is it fair to put on some sort of arbitrary imaginative continuum imaginary continuum the the age of a company or technology and the value of moat versus innovation is there some sort of x y axis where we kind of see you know if we if we put our minds together and wrote a consulting paper on it and made a fortune is there is there a line that says you know if you're in this situation here's where moats are more important or as important if you're in a different circumstance either you or your competitors or your industry this is where innovation matters more, both as a company, as an investor? Yeah, so I think in new um, evolving domains, innovation matters a lot, Yeah, right? right? Um, I think innovation also matters a lot in the general sort of technology area because things okay. change very quickly. Right. Um, but I think it matters a lot more in fast changing, rapidly changing, mm. uh, you know. So I think innovation probably doesn't matter that much, say, for, you know, grocery shopping, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, for, yeah, uh, exactly. or, or for toll roads, at least not yet, yeah, yeah. right? Um, but... <laughs> But innovation would matter a lot in, you know, uh, in anything to do with the internet, really, yeah, you know, okay. whether it's online shopping or whether it is like, you know, um, online networking or yeah, video streaming yeah. or whatever else you wanted to think about, right? So I, I think it, it, I think that's how I look at it, delineated. But yeah, I think it's, it's, I think to your point, one, one thing I want to draw out is when you say related to the internet, it's also if the competition is internet based. So you mentioned online shopping is related to the internet, of course it is. Physical shopping, 
is also related to the internet in the sense that that is the new competition. And so you want to be careful that you may be the best physical shop in the world. Um, you might have been in the online space. So, so people might have said, well, you know, furniture, right? Temple and Webster, a, a recent recommendation of ours. Um, I think even five years ago, I would have scoffed at people buying sofas online. I think, I think you know, I was, we've never recommended Harvey Norman, but I was kind of interested in Harvey Norman on and off when the price dipped down because I was like, well, okay, people will buy music, they'll buy computers, they'll buy TVs, they'll buy, I get that. Who's going to buy a bed without sitting on it? Who's going to buy a couch without sitting on it? Who's going to buy a bit of furniture without going measuring it up? The answer is huge and increasing numbers of people. Um, but of course, you know, COVID has accelerated that. But in the US, um, Wayfair, the business, has been doing that for years now. I mean, there is some sense that, yeah, and that may, maybe the big watch out for those who invest in companies with big moats is just being mindful that that moat can be eroded. I'll go back to Geico quickly, actually, just for a sec, because what Geico have done really, really, really well is is kept their moats and innovated ways of actually improving that moat using the technology. So where they could have otherwise been bypassed by saying, no, no, our strength is this. We do this this way really easily. They had the foresight to say, actually, no, we can use the internet to drive down our costs, to improve our reach. You know, you can actually do both. But to your point, the the desire or the willingness to use innovation or simply just be nimble. Maybe maybe nimbleness is kind of the bridge between the two. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm trying to force it here, but it does strike me that, you know, as an established existing business, you can absolutely have your moats, but you need to know when the right time is to either destroy your own moat, fill in your own moat, add to your own moat, whatever, again, terrible metaphor you want to use, to try and bridge that gap. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. Which company, mate, has the strongest moat in the world? How's that for a question? <laughs> um, well, the problem with this question, okay, answering this question <laughs> yeah. is... Um, That's why I get to ask you, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so a lot of companies have more than one moat, right? Yeah. Um, I guess the more moats you've got, the stronger it is yeah, true, for, true. For, for you. And to some degree, too, I would argue that, that three or four weak moats is probably better than one strong one, in the sense because they reinforce each other. When I say weak moats... I think the result is stronger. Yeah. If you can add a few of those together and, and reinforce them, each of them individually, you know, it reduces the risk that someone blows up one of the moats. If you've got three or four, if someone yeah. gets through one or two of them, you've got a couple that actually interact nicely. Yeah, like, I mean, if, if I have to think of companies with strong moats and then, you know, mm. um, a company like, you know, Alphabet or Google, a company like, you know, Facebook, a company like Apple, mm. I mean, a company like Amazon, um, you know, aren't they? Are they not disruptable? They are disruptable in 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 their own right. But I think they have probably the strongest um, combination of these modes. Yeah, like right. e- even just you know, like something like Facebook, for example, would have uh, a strong mode, um, right? And you know, and then you add the, all the other things that they've got. I think it, you know, they they look like the strongest companies in that sense. Yeah, I like it. I think I agree on, on most of those. Um, again, because I like a brand, I think Apple's got a spectacularly good brand. I actually think Musk undervalues his own brand when he talks about moats being lame. I think the Tesla brand, but the price people want to pay, the coolness of the technology. I think if you had a similar vehicle with no with exactly the same features with, with a different brand, I think you would sell less of it for a lower price. I think there is real value there. One of the, one of the strongest emerging brands, I think. Um, if I say to even some businesses, and I will mention Telstra, I own it. I don't like you don't like the company necessarily. Um, again, it's you know the, the perception of the value of the network is big. So you know, yes, Telstra has the best network, but also it's become synonymous with the best network in a way that people don't even necessarily ask or check now. They assume that's true and they pay more for its services. And again, there's some, there's some value. I don't think it's the best brand in the world, by the way, but just in terms of some of those some of those advantages. So I. 
I think network effects probably the top one for me. As I said, maybe brand second. I think that's I think that's really really important. Um, just to, to to finish off, mate. The if you think about innovation, is innovation really not just a moat? I mean, isn't that kind of the point? If you, I mean, it has to be sustainable. It's got to be better than the other guys. Like, oh, I think almost to some degree, if you're doing it well, once you define it, it's almost synonymous as as its own moat. Yeah, it is a type of mode, but it's not, it's like, I mean, you can say that anything that strengthens a company and over time is basically a moat, which is really how the moat is being defined, right? It's sustainable, yeah. I mean, if you if you take the classic moat definition, the moat, uh, I mean, the, the well, the classic moat for the castle, right? I mean, that's basically just a dugout with water, <laughs> right? And you don't really do yeah. anything over yeah. time. You build the moat, yeah. and you just stay put. Yeah. I guess the difference is that you you can't build the moat and stay put. You have to constantly nurture the moat, yeah. and I think. To, to I mean, to be fair to uh, Buffett and everyone else who talks about more, mm, I mean, mm. nobody ever said uh, that, um, you know, uh, that the moats need not be nurtured. But, but I think yeah. what, I think the, the implication that, I, I guess the way this has been misinterpreted to some extent is, you know, there's this quote that Buffett has that, you know, somebody stupid is going to run my company. <laughs> so I wanted my company to have yeah. some moat yeah. and have some quality so that the stupid person right, cannot right. destroy it. Right. And, and um, you know, and, and, and therefore Musk says, you know, he's going to build a candy shop and he's going to just build a moat around it, fill it with the candy yeah, and right. he's going to compete against these <laughs> candies. And, and, you know, honestly, I mean, it's possible, right? Um, so, uh, so I think that's, you know, that, that's, that's a, so I mean, mm. innovation though I think is really innovation is very is a mm. very is a classic mode in my opinion mm. largely mm. because it's very difficult to innovate. Yeah, not every company innovates, not every oh, person absolutely. innovates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and therefore those that can have I think an advantage, right. a sustainable advantage over the others, right? Yeah. and and it's 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 this, well, the classic thing about you know if if you've got if you if you're working on the best problems. Then you attract the best engineers. Yeah. The best engineers in return give you the you know, best solution. Therefore, you attract more customers, and therefore, you know, you potentially have mm, the ability mm, to mm. solve even bigger problems. Yeah. And therefore, you attract even more people. So I think it's it's the it's the virtuous cycle that um, that helps. You know, and then how does it get broken over time? I mean, you know, at, at some point you lose that spirit. You you know, your company becomes too big. You're no longer as nimble. You become institu- You know, like yeah. I think the problem with most companies over time is they become institutionalized. Yeah. Right. right? Oh yeah. But when, when I work for a business that I won't name because it's 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 actually completely fair, but it's not appropriate. Um, it was the most calcified business I've been in, yeah. in my entire life. It was they were using Lotus Notes for email. Uh, whenever I suggest anything, I'd say no. That we have we've done that before. It doesn't work. That's not how we do things around here. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is yeah. just brutal. Yeah. So institutionalization is probably like you know the death of a company, right? And, mm. and that doesn't happen immediately. If a company with a moat, which is institutionalized, can be alive for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just not going to be a very fast growing <laughs> and a nice business, right? Right. 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 So, so I will say, mate, one of the things that. Uh, just to bring it back, bring it back uh, maybe to, to where we started from. There's, it is an interesting, so for all of the moat stuff, and I think a lot of Warren Buffett stuff gets kind of simplified down to the point of almost being useless. It becomes so trite that it's not very useful. And I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with, well, I think, I think Musk is wrong that moats are lame, but I get the point he's trying to make. He's not exactly trying to be nuanced in his point. He was trying to, he's a bit, he's a bit outlandish as a guy. He likes to make big, big outlandish statements. And he made the point that innovation was more important. I think for his business, I think that's absolutely true. And particularly if you talk about other car makers, Ford's brand and GM's brands don't mean much in the face of Tesla. 
Buffett said, and I'm just going to quote a little bit of uh, text here. He said, well, I sent a letter to the managers and I talked to them about widening the moat. So again, to your point about the moat, uh, not just being static, but actually being widened. I say it isn't the question of the earnings per share this quarter or anything like that. Any business that is has a widening moat is going to make a lot of money over time. They are guardians of the moat. I say a great business is like an economic castle. And if you have an economic castle in capitalism, there's going to be a bunch of people that are going to try and take it away from you. So I need a knight in the castle, the manager who worries about protecting the castle all the time. And then I want this moat around it and I want the moat to get wider. And here's what I think is interesting. And, and again, almost to Buffett and Musk, almost I think are in fierce, fierce agreement as it turns out. He says, it may be the service. It may be better product design, all kinds of things. It can be what's in their mind about the product, a consumer product. But I want that moat to be widening. And I want people to toss sharks and piranha, octopus, everything into that moat to keep away those competitors because they're going to be coming at a manager charged with that. I tell our managers, pretend this is the only business that you and your family can own for the next 100 years. You can't sell it and you've got to make this one work. And that means every day thinking about what's going to make a great business over 100 years. I just thought it was a nice way to kind of wrap up both those kind of Otherwise, opposing views into something that's actually not maybe as as diametrically opposed. And we've talked about that as we've gone. We haven't we haven't made a big deal of the the opposing views, but there is something similar. I think if you put that quote to both men, they'd probably go, "Yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> and yeah, and yet we end up with this kind of you know um, public public spat, or you know maybe just a good natured disagreement about what a moat really is. Right, that has been a lot of fun. Any last thoughts? No, I, as I said, like you know, I I I, I think as I, you know, and I think that nicely sums up. As, as I think you rightly point out, a lot of the stuff that Buffett says. Is it appears as um, so much such common sense yeah. that it's very easy to you know turn it into something trite <laughs> yeah, and that's, right. um, that's so what you have to do yeah yeah right. and, and there's, there's, I think that that's important right you know yeah. the nuance is is important there and I think that as as you read out that that nuance is you know you need to widen the moat and and I think the last thing I want to say is that you know. It doesn't. One of the things I want to make clear: it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be investing in no more businesses. Like we should yeah, invest. Right. Uh, I think we can invest in a business that has no more that could potentially have a more someday, uh, or we can yeah, invest right. in a business today that you know doesn't have a more but is growing really fast and therefore, you know, can be something tomorrow. Right? Again, right, right. There's a spectrum of. If you pay too much for a moat, you might not make actually yes. a good return. Yes, exactly. So all of those things uh, are important. I mean, we didn't talk today at all about the price component of the moat, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the price is also an important component. Future opportunities is an important component. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of my last, I think, bit. I like it. I should go on holidays more often, mate. I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time talking weekly about the week, the news of the week and the implications. And hopefully that's useful both as, a, as an explanation, as a teaching opportunities as we go through each week. Sometimes though, when we can't talk about the news of the week, because I've been you know, in West New South Wales for the last seven days, it's always nice just to be able to sit down and actually have a chat about some other stuff that is as maybe more important, maybe, but just not as timely, um, yet is evergreen in its application. So I hope you've enjoyed that, Phil. I certainly have. It's always fun to talk to Doc. Um, if you do like what Doc had to say, Join his service. Join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Find some of those businesses that may well be either the great innovators or the big moat builders or maybe even both because they're the sorts of businesses that Doc and Kevin are looking for. You can get a great deal on this, like a stupidly cheap deal. Go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. If you're sick of me saying it's stupidly cheap, seriously, check it out for yourself. You'll agree with me. Um, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. The guys are doing a fantastic job, as we always say. Past performance is no guarantee. On the flip side, they are taking a successful strategy, applying it really, really well. 
um, I think our members will be well and truly pleased and well looked after by Doc and Kevin. Again, I can't make any promises and offer no guarantees because ASIC doesn't like it and it's not really the right thing to do. But uh, I think you'll be well, well looked after to the best of those guys' abilities and they are formidable abilities, let me tell you that. Okay, that wraps us up, mate. Before we go, though, don't forget, listeners, you can, and we would like you to, subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast, the motiest, most innovative podcast in the country. That's uh, as per me. Um, do it through iTunes, speaking of Apple. Do it through your favourite Android podcast app, speaking of Google, or do it through the new Podcast One app. We're now part of the Podcast One family, as I've been saying for the past few weeks. And, of course, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating. Give us some stars. Help us out with our own network effect. The more listeners, the more reviews. means more listeners, the more reviews. And that means, guess what? From next week, you've only got to pay half the price for this podcast. That's right, the cost is coming down. Half the price you're paying now for this podcast is what you'll have to pay next week. How lucky are you? All right, that's probably enough. Don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox too and a offer for Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back Sunday, don't worry. We're pre-recording, but we're back on Sunday with a special mailbag. See you then. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.